Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be here. And Haley Knoth. Hello, hello. Guys, I think we have to just jump right in, feet first in today's show, because we've got a lot of big things to talk about, plenty to get through. We do have a really interesting chat for our main segment today, a little later in the show, with Celeste Bott, who's one of our Illinois court reporters. She's going to talk to us about a really interesting ruling about a biometric privacy law in that state and how the Supreme Court there may have opened up a lot of liability for employers. Yeah, Celeste does a great job covering both the Illinois courts and the legislature and all of that. Greatly looking forward to hearing that discussion with you guys, but we do have some news to get to. And Haley, it seems like the big law squabbles uh, are among us once again. They are. Today, I want us to dig into, you know, kind of an awkward fight. I'll call it awkward, and you'll you'll see why here in a little bit. Between two big firms at the helm of high-profile antitrust litigation against Facebook's parent company, Meta Platforms. So the firms involved here are Hoggins Berman and Quinn Emanuel, and they've been co-leading the consumers in this case for some time. But lately, they have not been getting along And one of the Hoggins-Berman attorneys actually accused her Quinn Emanuel counterparts of gender bias. So both firms were looking to oust the other from the co-lead spot in the wake of these allegations. But what's awkward is this week, the judge overseeing this case actually ruled that the firms are going to have to work it out, figure out how to get along, because he's leaving things as is. Yeah, that's a bit of a tough pill to swallow if you're alleging gender bias from your co-counsel. We need to break that down. What exactly is the case we're talking about? And how did we kind of get to this squabble that's left with like, kids simmer down and work it out in the backseat of the car? (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those monopolization cases that we've actually talked about before on the show. So the consumers claim that Facebook misrepresented its data privacy practices to lure users onto its platform. And they say the company then used users' data to identify potential competitors and buy them. And that was evident, according to them, in the big acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp. In March 2021, the district judge assigned to the case at the time, that judge has since been, I believe, confirmed to the Ninth Circuit, so no longer overseeing this case, But she appointed Stephen Swedlow of Quinn Emanuel and Shana Scarlett of Hoggins Berman as interim lead counsel. The trouble began last November when Swedlow left the firm to become a judge. Quinn Emanuel then asked the district court if they could substitute in another attorney. His name is Kevin Teruya. Hoggins Berman opposed that request, telling the court that the leadership structure just was not working, and the firm's relationship was essentially falling apart. So the current judge overseeing the case, that's District Judge James Donato, then reopened applications for uh, the appointment of interim lead counsel. And that brings us pretty much to where we are today. My first impression of what's going on in the story is that this is a case full of overachievers. We got attorneys (laughs) becoming judges. We got judges becoming appellate judges, throwing everything into chaos here. Um, But I am speaking sincerely. I am really fascinated when, obviously, with class actions, sort of definitionally, there is 
you know, oftentimes hundreds or even thousands of plaintiffs. And it's always interesting to me the way that the interests of those various people are juggled and the way the court decides to appoint who is best to oversee those disputes. I want to sort of center us back to what we're talking about in this case, though. You were talking specifically about uh, Hoggins-Berman has leveled some pretty serious gender bias allegations. What exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, so Scarlett is the one who made those claims. She said the Quinn Emanuel attorneys on the case gave her views less weight because of her gender. Here's a quote from her during a hearing last month. It's difficult when my vote counts for less than someone else's vote. And from my perspective, it's because of my gender. And at times, my voice isn't being listened to when others on the same team, male voices, are being listened to. In her application, Scarlett said that she should serve as the sole interim lead counsel, or alternatively, she and an attorney with another plaintiff's firm could do it together, just not Quinn Emanuel, basically. Okay, well, I mean, the judge, spoiler alert, we already said didn't really buy that. And I assume it's in part because Quinn Emanuel had their own side of the story. What did they say? They strongly denied those claims and suggested that the issue was really a common one. It was just a disagreement among attorneys. It's bound to happen when there are multiple lawyers on a team or multiple firms working together on a case. It slammed the allegations as offensive, unprofessional, and unsupported. Here is a quote from Teruya, the lawyer they wanted to substitute in. We have several female counsel who we respect and listen to. One of the main partners at our firm is female counsel. We are very committed to listening to and respecting the voices of female counsel. In Quinn Emanuel's application, it suggested that only Teruya should lead the class, though I do want to note that it really emphasized that it tried repeatedly to work with Hoggins-Berman, and Hoggins-Berman is the one that is insisting it should be the sole counsel leading the case. So at the end of the day, the judge, these are some pretty serious allegations and, you know, some, some pretty powerful law firms that are, that are squabbling over, over these allegations. But in the end, the judge said he's just going to leave things as is where they're both, they are, they're co-leading the case. What was the reasoning there? I mean, was he just a little tired of hearing all about this great work they're doing with female counsel or, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what? What was the reasoning behind leaving things status quo? Yeah, he really didn't get into the merits of their arguments. He designated both Teruya and Scarlett as interim lead counsel, but he did say that he did so with some reservations. And he said that he did consider getting other firms to just take over the case altogether, but the litigation is just too far down the road for that at this point. It was filed in 2020. So he's like, it's been three years. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just, no, that's not in the best interest of the consumers. He did kind of lecture the firms in his order. He said that they should treat this as the start of a new day, put their conflicts behind them. (laughs) And he warned that these designations are interim. And that means that any, quote, further reports of dysfunctionality or breakdowns in the work relationship will likely result in designation of new counsel for a class that may be certified later in the case if it comes to pass. So, leaving things as is, he's cranky about it. 
Not weighing in on the merits. That about sums it up. I don't want anybody gender biasing on my watch. If I get wind of that again, you guys are going to be in real trouble. I'm going to turn <laughs> this car around and take yeah, right. you home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, super interesting case, though. We'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Like I say, I think it's very interesting when, you know, I mean, th- this is a serious allegation about, you know, female attorneys being pushed to the side. But any kind of dispute over who's serving the client's interests to the best of their ability is obviously worth worth watching. So next, I do want to pivot to something uh, a little bit lighter, I suppose. Some light fraud being alleged, which I know we're- light fraud. We all are interested in that. And if you're like me, you're a sucker for a good scammer story. I and do like a scam story, Alex. I know I'm you into do. This. I know you do. And I, I kind of was saying this with you in mind, Amber, because um, we got a good one for you this week. The DOJ filed charges against a man who purportedly, and again, this is all based on a complaint filed by the DOJ. It's all we have to go on now. I'll do my normal spiel of basically everything we're talking about is alleged in this complaint. So if I'm a little fast and loose with facts, just know that that's what I'm going off of. But the guy at the center of these charges is alleged to have falsely held himself out as both the general counsel for a New York private equity shop and a big law attorney uh, in the course of a very protracted scheme to take money from investors. So a lot of misrepresentations here with a kind of weird big law hook, lots to mull over. Here's what I love the most right off the bat. It's really a New York story, right? It's like, what, who do you want to pretend to be? Private equity and big law. We got it. <laughs> yes. It. Um, but tell me more. I mean, obviously, I'm really into the story. So give me some more details about what's going on here. Yeah, it's a good call by you. They are, th- this, this person is really kind of threading the needle of New York's you know, legal market and the and the finance market. Yeah. Uh, so according to this complaint filed by the DOJ in New York, it accuses the uh, a man, he's an Orlando resident named Jonathan David Gertler of basically running this elaborate scheme wherein he impersonated the general counsel of this private equity firm. The, the firm is not named in this charging document, um, but he basically was calling up companies that are in this firm's portfolio to get money from them, which is a pretty straightforward scam. You call someone, you say, hey, I'm with that firm that you're putting money into. I want some more money. Seems simple enough. Classic. There, but, but there's more. The pretense for his request of, of, of trying to get more money from these companies was quite striking, in my opinion. So Gertler allegedly told these companies, that the reason that he needed money is because the private equity firm, which again, he does not work for, was being investigated for its ties to the convicted billionaire sex offender, Jeffrey Epstein. So basically he's calling him up and saying, we've got Epstein ties and it's costing us a lot of money to investigate this stuff. We're, We're under pressure from investigators and we need more money and we need it from you. That is a really, first, it's a very specific scam line. But also, 
you'd think that that would immediately make people reticent to give you any more money. Yes, you would think that. Um, but at least as it's laid out in these particular documents, Gertler ran this particular scam at least a couple of times, taking more than a million dollars from a bunch of companies and always using the kind of internal Epstein-related probe as a cudgel to put kind of a wedge between these people and their money. So, uh, yes, Amber, I agree. It would probably send up some alarms, you know, for me if I was an investor. Of course, they charges were eventually brought. Somebody was suspicious. So that's where we're at now. I just feel like, you know, say anything with enough conviction, and it's going to work <laughs> some of the time. So, yeah, you know, this is true. Go to enough people, say it strong enough, you're going to get somebody. Just an extraordinarily unflattering backstory, though. Yeah. Let's get into the big law part, though. So while he's over here in private equity land, he's also pretending to be in big law? Yeah, so this is where it gets really good. So again, according to the document, according to the complaint, Gertler had been running this investment firm general counsel con for quite a while. And at some point, he gets wind that the feds are on to him. Somebody, to your point, Amber, somebody got suspicious and called the feds. And it's when the FBI agents came knocking, he basically doubles down on the entire prospect. So when federal agents call him on the phone to ask him about having held himself out as the GC of this investment firm, This is when he kind of pivots and allegedly presents himself as an attorney with what the complaint just terms as a global law firm. Doesn't say the name of the firm, but we're left to kind of presume it's a pretty big law firm. That he basically says that he's pretending to be this this big shot lawyer and that he is representing the portfolio companies that he had just scammed pretending to be the lawyer for the investment company, if this makes sense. So he is saying, I am now representing these companies. And actually, these companies don't want to press charges against this scammer guy, who, by the way, is me, uh, because they have been, quote, made whole. So he's, he's running this. It's a little convoluted, but he's basically saying, I am a law firm. I'm representing the companies. They don't want to press charges against this person who was scamming them, when in reality, he is both the guy pretending to be the lawyer and the person who was running the scam in the first place. Con inside a con. I really like it. Yeah, it is. It's scamception, if you want to yeah. look at it that way. <laughs> to, to put some more specifics on it, the transcripts from the call with the feds that I just described say that Gertler, and again, he's pretending to be a big law attorney, said... And this is, I really like when transcripts are very precise, which they take into account stammers and stutters. But anyway, Mm -hmm. this is what he is alleged to have said on a call with the feds. He said, quote, our position is that uh, the law states that, um, you know, if the money was paid back prior to uh, the crime being uh, discovered, uh, it's not a crime. That's a direct <laughs> quote from the transcript. Uh, Sounds like me, a real law to me. That's airtight. I mean, that's airtight. And that's what he told the feds. As you can imagine, this unraveled pretty quickly. And that brings us to these charges being brought. 
I was really on board with this until we got to that quote. I thought he was somehow a really sophisticated scammer. But yeah, the ums and the uhs and the, hey, that's not a crime now, right? That'll get you. Well, I will say, I mean, I've talked to like very, very powerful corporate attorneys who aren't always the most eloquent speakers. I mean, they can write a brief and all this stuff. I mean, not, not everybody's Shawn Michaels on the mic here. But anyway, <laughs> the thing to know is that this guy, Gertler, purportedly has quite the rap sheet of doing stuff that is looks pretty close to the scamming he's, he's accused of doing here. In August of 2001, New York prosecutors charged him with a bunch of fraud counts for again, very similarly, impersonating corporate counsel to get money from the companies Alcoa and Allstate. In that proceeding, he was sentenced to 71 months in prison, and he was eventually transferred to a halfway house in Florida before escaping custody. Quite an adventure here. Florida prosecutors eventually filed new charges, again, alleging the same kind of impersonating counsel scam. Those charges got him a 15-year prison sentence back in 2009. He was let out early on appeal in 2019, only to apparently get back into the... I mean, sometimes you just can't quit the game, allegedly. (laughs) So that's what's going on with Gertler. Again, we, uh, you know, it's quite a big swing for him to take, and we'll see how these uh, charges shake out. The Illinois Supreme Court late last week ruled that every time the burger chain White Castle unlawfully collected employees' fingerprints, a new claim accrued under the state's biometric privacy law. That's different from the standard of previous suits being based only on the first violation, and it could lead to astronomical damages for employers and flood the state's privacy docket. Here to discuss the ruling and the potential fallout is one of our Illinois court reporters, Celeste Bott. Welcome to the show, Celeste. Thanks for having me. I really want to get into this, but I think we probably need to start kind of basic here. Can you just explain that Biometric Information Privacy Act in Illinois and kind of how it works and what the courts have said about it before we get to the case we're talking about today? Yeah, totally. So the Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, as it's best known around here in Illinois, it requires companies, employers uh, to secure written informed permission before collecting biometric information like fingerprints or face scans. So these companies need to get a written release from people. They need to share why and for how long the data is being captured. They need to make their data retention policies and guidelines for destroying biometric data publicly available. And they can't profit from the collection or the dissemination of this data. So what was unique about BIPA, and there there have now been several other states that have passed similar laws, is that it has a private right of action. So enforcement isn't left with a state attorney general or anything like that. Private citizens can sue over this. And it provides for $1,000 for every negligent violation of the law and $5,000, up to five five grand for intentional and reckless violations of the law. So it's still 
a very developing area of law. Um, this, this law was passed in 2008, but we didn't really see significant amounts of litigation until the last five, 10 years. And so that means the Illinois Supreme Court has been really busy uh, these last few years interpreting the statute. And so far, they've sided with the plaintiffs and the plaintiffs bar on just about every big issue, including the one we're going to talk about today. Um, they've ruled that the Illinois workers' compensation law doesn't bar these kinds of claims. They've held that people have five years to launch a BIPA suit um, as opposed to a one-year statute of limitations. And now they've just ruled last week that BIPA claims accrue each time a person's data is unlawfully collected or disclosed rather than just the first time. And that also goes along with they've also said that it doesn't have to be a concrete harm. It's just that if there's a statutory violation, that those also count for, for these penalties. That's right. That's, a, that's another Illinois Supreme Court ruling that kind of opened the floodgates for these kind of lawsuits. You know, all you have to allege is that the statute was violated. They didn't get your written permission, they're, you know, and, and they didn't make certain disclosures that the law requires about how they're collecting your data. You don't have, there doesn't have to be a data breach or your private information, like getting taken by a bad actor or something like that to, to cause you to sue. You can just sue because you believe a company broke the law. Um, but a lot of these suits have been stayed the last few years while some of these big issues are decided. So we're going to see a lot of the, that litigation move forward now because we haven't even really reached the merits of these cases yet. Yeah. So let's get into this case, though. What exactly were the claims there? So this was kind of a classic BIPA case, so to speak, in that many of these lawsuits are in the employer-employee context, um, where you have a current or former worker suing their employer over scanning their fingerprint every day to clock in and out of work. And so here the plaintiff was, was an employee of White Castle, and uh, she brought suit on behalf of a proposed class of employees who said, who alleged that they scan their fingers to like access pay stubs and the company computers and, and things like that. And she claimed that White Castle both unlawfully collected her biometric information when she had to scan her fingerprint every day. And she said they, you know, they didn't make the disclosures they needed to. They didn't get her written informed consent. And she also alleges that White Castle disclosed it unlawfully to a third party vendor. Let's walk through this issue of when a claim accrues, because you know, that sounds a little nerdy and wonky, right? Like, how are we counting these? But basically all it means is, do you just count it as one big thing or do you count it every single time they scanned every single day? That's exactly it. And like using this case, the context of this case to explain, it's does the plaintiff get to sue for every time she scans her fingerprint at work to access a computer, to take a break? Or is it just the first time um, the fingerprint is captured and stored? And the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that the claims accrue for each and every individual scan. Um, that's its own violation of BIPA. And they acknowledged in their ruling that that could mean companies and employers face pretty massive liability. Um, when you think about how many times an employee, um, you know, depending on the size of the company and how all these employees scanning their, their fingerprints and, and each time marks its own violation, that can be scary stuff. But the court basically said that the Illinois legislature intended to subject companies to um, who fail to comply with the law to to that big liability so that they have the strongest possible incentive to comply with it. So um, the court really just said the plain language of the statute supports the plaintiff's position. And that's the bottom line. 
Yeah, let's get more into what companies are saying here. What are they primarily concerned with? And Celeste, I want some numbers here. Like, what are we even thinking for this White Castle one? I know there's been some speculation about how big this could be. And when I read some of this in your reporting, I was a little gobsmacked, honestly. Yeah, totally. So um, White Castle estimated in this case that their per scan damages for them would be $17 billion. And I mean, taking into account, yeah, yeah, $17 billion. So, you know, this is a fast food chain with lots of employees throughout the state. Um, And just to put a little bit of some additional context on it, I covered the first BIPA case to go to trial this year uh, against BNSF Railway, which the plaintiff won. Uh, the jury sided with with um, a class of truck drivers who had to scan their fingerprints to uh, get in and out of the railway's uh, rail yards. And they found those violations of, of BIPA were willful, so $5,000 per person. But the court entered judgment for only one violation per driver. It was not every time a driver scanned to go in and out. So and that judgment in that case was $228 million. So that's one violation per person in one class action was $228 million. So you can do the math and kind of figure out how it could go up from there. Yeah, it gets huge really fast, especially since you said earlier that there's a five-year statute of limitations. So these could be, you know, it could be so many scans per employee. This really gets exponential, as you said. I do want to talk about one little bit of a safety valve in some respects, and that's that this this ruling, if I understand it correctly, pretty clearly said that the damages here are discretionary, not mandatory. So does that give employers any safety net that judges will, in fact, decide on a damage award that seems fair? I think so. I mean, I think in its ruling, the court pretty clearly puts the the onus on trial courts to craft awards that that find a way to strike the balance between compensating these privacy plaintiffs um, without destroying the business entirely. Um, and if those awards are discretionary, then courts can also take things into account, like what we talked about, you know, about how you can sue for no real world harm. If if there was no data breach and it was just, you know, I didn't sign a written release before my information was collected, that's the sort of thing that can be taken into account if judges have the discretion to award the damages. Though I will note that the plaintiffs, including the plaintiff, many plaintiffs and, and the plaintiff in this case, have argued that they're not trying to seek per scan damages either. Um, And and, um, the plaintiff's attorney in this case even said in arguments that, you know, there are constitutional due process protections that would bar like some of these massive disproportionate damages awards. So I think while the court has certainly opened the door for per scan damages, um, I don't know that that necessarily means that's what all these plaintiffs are going to seek. I mean, as a practical matter, if if your the damages award forces a company into bankruptcy, it's going to be harder for a plaintiff in a class to get compensated. So we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, is there any before we let you go? Is there any other fallout that we should be watching for in the wake of this ruling? Um, some attorneys mentioned to me that this could lead to more plaintiffs bringing individual BIPA suits instead of class actions because you know, let's say you work somewhere for three years, you clocked in and out of work every day. And, you know, if you can pursue $1,000 or $5,000 for every time you did that over a three-year period, that's a pretty big damages claim in its own right. And it's kind of like, well, does the class action mechanism make sense under those circumstances? So 
we'll see about that. Um, I also think that there is going to be a renewed push to revisit the law at the legislative level. Um, that's, that's essentially what the Illinois Supreme Court encouraged lawmakers to do. Um, they said these concerns about excessive damages are, are for the lawmakers, not for them. We, there have been in, amendments introduced uh, to, to clarify things in BIPA in the past, but they didn't go very far at all. Um, I do think this ruling will motivate groups like the Illinois Chamber of Commerce and, and you know, uh, entities like that to, to advocate even harder for, for amending the law. As a, you know, as a former political reporter, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. I think it's, it's kind of a harder political sell, maybe. Like, you know, I'm not sure which lawmaker is going to raise their hand to be like, you know, I know this is your private data, but think of the, think of the companies. But, you know, they have, to, <laughs> they, have to, they have to think about attracting and retaining business to their state, too. So, you know, never say never. And uh, I, I think certainly there's going to be a push to amend it. And whether or not it gets any traction, uh, we'll, we'll see. This is going to be a great one to watch. It really feels like you know, sometimes you hear that old cliche of laboratories of democracy are the states. But here in Illinois, with this privacy law on the books and it being right at the forefront, that's really true. So look forward to reading more about it from you, Celeste. Thank you so much. We like to end our show with something offbeat. Amber, we're talking movies again, which I'm always excited about. And you have the floor. Alex, this weekend we have what I would call a drop into the history of cinema that I think will probably rival great achievements like Snakes on a Plane. And that is the release of Cocaine Bear. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have heard of this one, but it's a movie described on Wikipedia as a dark comedy action film that's inspired by the true story of a American black bear who got into some coke in the 80s. So excited. Love it. I remember where I was when I first saw the trailer. Yeah. Um, Just, I mean, yeah, we're going to get to that. Um, <laughs> so I, I will say, I mean, why am I allowed to talk about Cocaine Bear on that this That was program? my question. What are we, I mean, not that you have to twist my arm to talk about Cocaine <laughs> Bear, but what, but what are we talking about? I did propose this when the trailer first dropped and we're, we waited till this weekend because the movie comes out this weekend. We can wait on a news peg folks. We can. Don't, we can. don't try and sneak one by us. We can time a segment. All right. I do believe this, this is going to be up there with some of my other crowning achievements on this podcast. It's so ridiculous. And I'm going to be honest, there's only a little legal connection, but it's giving me enough cover to riff on cocaine Barry, And I want to talk about this movie. So we're doing it. It does all come back to based on true events. So I'd like to sort of unfurl that for you guys a little bit as we continue to talk. Yeah, I want to talk about it. I do want to say, and you you mentioned Snakes on a Plane at the top. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to see the movie because it's, you know, very silly. I am always a little bit skeptical of movies that like sort of seem like reverse engineered for memes. I mean, sure. like I love memes. Haley, I know you do as well. But it like there's like a 2009 era like internet comedy vibe about this whole thing where it was like 
oh my god, bacon and cats and ninjas <laughs> and cocaine bear. So I, I don't mean to be a party pooper, but that is like kind of my okay. initial thing. But oh, anyway, yeah. the, the, I think it'll be bad, maybe. Well, I, don't, I don't know. Hot it's, take. It's fine to have those initial takes. I mean, it's very clear that all three of us have watched the trailer yeah. for this movie. For anybody who's like, what, what are you talking about? Cocaine bear, what? It looks ridiculous. It's literally a coked up bear killing people throughout the forest, jumping towards speeding ambulances that are trying to get away. You know, the works. It's mm-hmm. got it all. I don't want to do that thing where I'm like, well, actually, but it's a pretty huge exaggeration of what did actually happen with the real cocaine bear. And there was one that's real. So I'm going to kind of fact check our way through this story just a little. And then, you know, we'll see that legal tattoo, which is my cover for being able to talk about this on the program. Go full Neil deGrasse Tyson on us. Tell us that if a bear actually does cocaine, certain things happen and it doesn't involve mauling Alden Ehrenreich. Uh, <laughs> if a bear does cocaine in the woods, does anyone hear it? Yeah, There's something great, there. Great. I don't know. Not to get all philosophical here. <laughs> well, what? Okay. Okay. What? What are the facts as we know them? Back in 1985, an ex-narcotics officer named Andrew Thornton brought more than 800 pounds of cocaine back from Colombia into the United States by plane. He thought he heard on the radio that federal agents were on his tail. And he ditched the duffel bags of the cocaine midair. Then he also bailed out of the plane. And turns out that was a very bad decision because he was found dead in a Tennessee driveway from that oh, no. choice. Thornton is, in fact, our legal part here. He was a lawyer before he became the head of a drug smuggling ring in Kentucky called The Company, which Sick. I like that little detail. Good branding. Uh-huh. Thornton at times was a police officer. He was even a member of the Lexington Police Department's narcotics squad in the 1970s, so some irony as well. He later took night classes at the University of Kentucky College of Law. He earned his law degree. He practiced in Lexington. But while he was practicing, he had this shadow role as a drug kingpin. He's like Stringer Bell. He's taken like <laughs> business classes. Well, I mean, this, he's taken law classes. Uh, Stringer took business classes, right? Sure. Yeah. Great wire reference. Love that. Yeah. So in addition to the movie Cocaine Bear, I'm going to make another TV reference here. Thornton's death served as an, the inspiration for a story arc on the TV show Justified. And full disclosure for all my friends who are listening to this podcast I know you've all told me to watch Justified, and I haven't gotten to it yet, but I will. I promise. It's a great show I've heard, and this is a plot point in one of the seasons. That's all good to know. But we're obviously, we're here for the bear, and we're here for the coke. So when does that come in? (laughs) Thank you for getting me back on track. We've done that pesky legal part where I told you who was a lawyer in this story. Yeah, I mean, a guy was a lawyer, and he He was a lawyer. And he he was facilitating some coke. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Okay. So... This is actually where I am leaning hard on the will, actually, of this program. All right. Uh, It's a lot less gory than I suspect the movie is going to go for here. The drugs that fell from the plane into a Georgia, they fell into a Georgia National Park. A bear got into them. So that part's real. The bear got coked up, but never actually killed anybody. The bear actually died of an overdose surrounded by 40 open containers with traces of cocaine in them. And so, striking oh. visual, if nothing else. Like so many mammals before him died of a cocaine overdose. Very sad. So I know that part's sad. And I, so I specifically saved this fact as a little pick-me-up for you guys. The bear did get a nickname. And the nickname is Pablo Escobar. Yeah. 
Okay, okay I like that. That's right. good. good. That's Feels good. good, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. They I like, should use I like that, that in the movie. I hope that they do. It's, it's too good to leave behind, I would presume. But okay, so Bear goes out as a legend. He was eventually, because of that status, stuffed. <laughs> he was owned for a time oh, by country music star Waylon Jennings. And then he was acquired and ended up at a mall in Kentucky. That's at least where he was the last story I read about it. He may have been moved again because of wow. you know, publicity from the movie. But this, the stuffed version of Pablo Escobar does <laughs> exist. And I like knowing that about the world. I don't like knowing that. I, that's, <laughs> I feel bad for Pablo Escobar. That's not how, he doesn't want to be chilling in a mall. His just... Corpse, I know, it's just... kind of sterile, right? It's just kind of, it's such a cool way to go out. And then you're there with like, this family's like stumbling out of Applebee's. And you're like, mm, <laughs> Jimmy, look at the bear, this bear. I think you're you know. wrong. This is real fame, guys. I remember as a kid, an uncle who had like a, a bearskin rug from where he'd like hunted a bear or whatever. Oh, nice. That was just some random bear that scared me as I had to walk by that rug when I was a kid. This is much better. This is a famous bear with a great nickname. Living on. It yeah. Legacy. Memorialized. Yeah. Very interesting. I, guess I would hope yeah. that he's at least inside a Cabela's or something. With <laughs> yeah, right. Putting Some his habitat. Yeah. That yeah. sounds like it would be better. No, I do not think that's where he was, Haley. So if he's still in that Kentucky Damn. mall, maybe somebody's listening from Kentucky right now. Yeah. Drop us a line and let us know. If By all means. There. I also want to say, I'll, I'll, you know, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll check out this movie at some point. And I thought that they were doing some very creative guerrilla marketing because a couple weeks ago, I saw you guys might have seen the news item that New Zealand police recovered more than three tons of cocaine floating in the Pacific Ocean. And it was like a drug <sighs> smuggling type of thing. Can and we that, get of course, cocaine in, shark? That, exactly. Yeah. This invited a lot of commentary about how there, there's already a sequel here in the works. For cocaine shark, and we'll see how that goes. Would watch yeah, that. I think I so. think I think I smell a pro se field trip in the works and um, the Kentucky by way of New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Or at least to see the movies. But yes. Anyway, really appreciate the indulgence at the end of the show, guys. And as always, happy to have been with you, Alex. Thank you. And Haley. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Celeste Bott, and our contributing reporters, Dorothy Atkins and Laura Anwood. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, it would really help us out if you left us five stars and a written review wherever you're listening right now. That's what helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.